Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Aaron, I got another question for you. Who is this? This is Luke. Oh, hey, Luke. What's up? So I asked you a couple weeks ago about something that you would ground your 30-year younger self for today. I'm curious, what is something about you today that your younger self would think is totally lame? Something about me today? Like if you met nine-year-old Aaron, what would he think is lame about you? Um... I can think of a few things that I don't want to say. <laughs> uh, he'd be like, that's as big as it gets. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hey, I'm sorry I called. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> For some reason, I'm, I'm like exposing myself to my younger self. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I got to hang up. <laughs> From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 40, Controversy Knows No Color. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, November 16th, 1991. Hello friends, we're back. Believe it or not, we're now down to the final seven episodes of 30 Pop recapping 1991. It's amazing to me how it goes by just as quickly the second time as it did the first. You get excited about something, you wait and wait and wait for it. Then you look up and it's six months later and whatever that thing was, it's long since been replaced by a half dozen other exciting things. I remember how excited I was to get into 1991 on the show and now it's mostly behind us and I'm already eagerly anticipating our coverage of 1992. It's going to be such a fun, nostalgic next year. For now though, let's finish this year strong. I'm really looking forward to this episode because while there was a lot happening in pop culture this week in 1991, it wasn't in all the typical places we look on this show. Meaning, for example, almost nothing changed as far as Billboard number ones. With only one exception, all the songs that were at number one last week remained so this week. Cream by Prince and the New Power Generation topped the Hot 100. Jodeci's Forever My Lady topped the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart. And Public Enemies Can't Trust It topped the Hot Rap Chart, each for their second straight week. Garth Brooks still had the top album in the country for the fifth consecutive week and sixth week overall with Rope in the Wind. But he also claimed the number one spot on the Hot Country Chart this week with his cover of the Billy Joel song, Shameless. Pretend I played a clip of it right there. As I've mentioned on the show previously, even while I'm confident that the way I use music on this show the copyrights for which I do not own, is completely legal, when it comes to Garth Brooks and the team of eager litigators I imagine surrounding him at all times, I don't really want to test that confidence. 
Joel apparently wrote this song in an attempt to channel one of his greatest influences, guitar legend Jimi Hendrix. Although, I suppose I'm just not familiar enough with Hendrix's music to hear it in this song. Or perhaps I'm just too familiar with Brooks's cover, because, honestly, when I listen to the original off Billy Joel's 1989 album Stormfront, it just feels like a not-great take on a Garth Brooks song to my ears. Joel never released it as a single, though. So Brooks, after having accidentally received the album as part of a mail-out CD club and fallen quickly in love with it, asked if he could release it. And I'm sure Joel made a lot of money by saying yes, because this was a huge release for Brooks. It was his seventh number one single overall, his eighth to break into the top three, and his ninth to make it into the top ten, which is especially impressive in light of the fact that this was only the ninth single of his career meaning all of them had been very, very successful, a trend he'd continue with every subsequent release for the next couple years. Personally, I'd never really loved this song. I didn't hate it either, I just couldn't take it seriously. I remember a radio DJ in Fort Worth at the time pointing out how each time Brooks belts out the words, I'm shameless, in the song, it kind of sounds like he's saying, I'm shaving, and I've never been able to hear it any other way since. Now, even though the charts didn't change much over the course of this week in 1991, there is still plenty of music news to discuss. Namely, the release of a couple major albums. First up, the November 11th release of the 14th studio album from English rock band Genesis, We Can't Dance. Technically, this album released on October 28th in the U.S., but in my prep for this season, it was listed as November 11th, as that's when it released in the U.K. So, I'll just pretend like that was intentional. They're a British band, so we'll respect the British release date. This was the final Genesis album to include drummer and frontman Phil Collins. He left the band in 1996 to pursue his solo career exclusively, and was replaced by Scottish singer Ray Wilson for one more album that failed commercially. The band has revived a couple times over the last 25 years with their best-known Collins-fronted three-piece lineup. But ultimately, this album... We Can't Dance was the end of their very, very long heyday. By 1991, the band had already existed for nearly 25 years, so the fact that they're still making music today, more than 50 years after forming, is truly remarkable. I'm not a huge Genesis fan, although I'm sure I would be if I spent more time with their earlier catalog. This album, though, I do have a couple favorite songs from this one. Jesus He Knows Me is one in particular. But I was and am a huge fan of the artist who had the other major release this week in 1991, rap icon Tupac, with his solo debut, Tupacalypse Now. This album casts a much larger shadow today than it did when it released, meaning it actually wasn't a hugely successful album. But looking back, knowing who Tupac became, and in light of the space he occupies in rap history, typically considered to be one of the two most important rappers of all time, this album feels huge. In reality, it was a moderate success at best. It was certified gold nearly four years after it released, and to date is still about 75,000 albums away from being certified platinum. Even still, it ruffled a lot of feathers in its day. Tupac had a tremendous lyrical gift for describing the world around him in all its brokenness and plainly calling out the powers that be. Then Vice President Dan Quayle, very publicly condemned the album for its lyrical commentary on police brutality, racism, teenage pregnancy, black-on-black violence, and poverty. Regardless, Tupac continued his rise to and beyond superstardom even after his death less than five years later. 
He remains, in my humble opinion, the single most important voice to come out of rap music, a genre, as I've mentioned countless times on this show, that I've loved deeply since I was a child. As controversy goes, though, Tupac was not alone. On November 14, 1991, the world received a gift from the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson, a gift that was received by some and rejected by others in the form of another very impressive, even revolutionary, somewhat star-studded music video for his single, which had released a few days earlier, Black or White. This single was about as big as you can possibly imagine. It would soon take the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 for seven consecutive weeks, but it was also the first song to ever be named the Billboard number one world single. The music video was directed by John Landis, who had previously directed Jackson's Thriller music video, followed by a string of very funny movies, including Trading Places, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, and Coming to America, among others. It opens with a long scene in which Macaulay Culkin, at this point one of the most beloved young actors and familiar faces in Hollywood, is in his room listening to music loudly. George Wendt, famous at the time for his role as Norm Peterson on Cheers, playing the father figure, barges into Macaulay's room, yells at him to turn it down, and slams the door behind him, shattering a framed poster of Michael Jackson. Macaulay rolls two massive stacks of speakers into the living room where his parents are sitting, plugs in his electric guitar, and turns the volume up as loud as it will go. Then strums a chord and sends his father, Went, bursting through the roof of their house, flying across the Atlantic in his chair, and landing no worse for the wear in the plains of Africa, surrounded by Zulu hunters who, along with Michael Jackson, begin dancing around as the song's guitar intro plays. The scenes change throughout the video to feature Jackson dancing alongside Thai, Russian, Native American, Sri Lankan, and people of other nationalities in styles native to their respective cultures, or at least similar styles. At some point, Jackson walks through fire, at another he sings at the top of the Statue of Liberty, and at one point we even see two babies, one black and one white, sitting together on top of a huge globe. As the song wraps up, there's a long sequence of smiling, dancing people shown from the shoulders up, morphing into each other one at a time. The technology for this morphing effect was basically brand new. It had been used for Terminator 2, but that had a $100 million budget. So you expect to see amazing special effects there. This was just a music video. But the effect was and remains stunning. Also, one of the faces featured in that sequence was supermodel Tyra Banks. All of that is well and good, and had the video ended there, no big deal. Jackson still would have made history. But here's where the controversy comes from. This video premiered simultaneously on MTV, BET, VH1, Fox, and BBC in 27 countries for an audience of over 500 million people. 500 million. Half a billion. That was, at the time, about a tenth of the world's population. This was the biggest deal, and the video didn't stop with that morphing sequence. The version that aired was 14 minutes long, and continued from that morph scene by zooming out from the production set to show a panther walking out of the studio. 
The panther morphs into Michael Jackson, who then dances his way through an abandoned alleyway late at night with no music playing whatsoever. In moments, he's grabbing and rubbing his crotch, zipping up his pants, punching through car windows, throwing trash cans through storefronts, and causing hotel signs to explode, yelling all the while. It's a long, fairly awkward scene that ends with Jackson morphing back into the panther, and then the camera zooming out again to reveal that this entire music video was on an animated TV screen being viewed by Bart Simpson. Homer walks in and tells him to turn it down, a callback to the video's opening scene, which at this point felt like it had happened years earlier. And then finally, a photo of Jackson appears on the screen with the words, Prejudice is ignorance. Clearly, there was a lot going on, and people kind of lost their minds over it. Mainly the crotch rubbing and the violence, I think. The backlash resulted in the last four minutes of the video being cut entirely, or at least altered in a number of different versions which would continue to air worldwide. But it did nothing to slow down the sales of this single, which went double platinum and remained the top-selling single of 1992, or the album it introduced, Dangerous, which we'll cover in just a couple weeks. I remember watching that premiere live, loving that it had Macaulay Culkin, being amazed by the morphing sequence, floored by the musicless dance scene, and very confused by the crotchier scenes. I loved that Jackson used his enormous platform to condemn racism and other forms of prejudice, and I did genuinely love the song. But even still, Black or White wasn't then and isn't now my favorite Michael Jackson tune. It's not even in my top ten, actually. In fact, this wasn't even my favorite music video from this album, but again, we'll get into that later. Lots of Michael Jackson in the weeks to come. In television news this week in 1991, we saw the end of the road for a cartoon that was inferior in every way to the film that inspired it. The Hollywood cash grab, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. I had been selected for a most important journey. I was to help fulfill the destiny of the two great ones, Bill and Ted. Wild Stallions rule! Whenever time stands still and trouble moves too fast While we celebrate almost all things Bill and Ted on this show, and even despite having Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, and George Carlin back to voice the roles of Ted, Bill, and Rufus for its first season, this cartoon, as well as its live-action spinoff in 1992, never should have existed in my opinion. If time travel were a real, accessible option, high on my to-do list would be to travel back to 1990 and find a way to keep this from being greenlit. Thankfully, it was short-lived. One other little piece of TV news from 30 years ago this week. On November 16th, Saturday Night Live welcomed three new cast members to the show. Ellen Cleghorn, Melanie Hutzel, and Beth Cahill, a.k.a. Queen Shaniqua and Jan and Marsha Brady. 
The number one film in the country this week in 1991 for its opening weekend was the Martin Scorsese remake of the 1962 Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum film adaptation of the 1957 John MacDonald psychological thriller novel, The Executioners. Both versions of the film, however, were entitled Cape Fear. This version of the film, far more violent than either its predecessor or the novel that inspired it, stars Robert De Niro and Nick Nolte in the roles previously held by Mitchum and Peck, each of whom also appear in this version of the film. This version did really well, both commercially and critically. De Niro and Juliette Lewis were each nominated for both the Oscar and Golden Globe for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actress awards, respectively, and for good reason. De Niro went so far as to pay $5,000 to have a doctor grind his teeth down for his portrayal of the film's psychopathic villain, Sam Cady, then $20,000 to have them restored after production wrapped. He also actually got tattooed all over, but rather than ink, used vegetable dyes, which faded away after a few months. If that's not commitment to a role, I don't know what is. The film was produced on a total budget of $35 million, but made just under $80 million back in the U.S. alone, and a grand total of $182 million worldwide. There was another new thriller in theaters this weekend, though, that looked far more thrilling than Cape Fear, despite having an abysmal $40,000 gross for its opening, and a total return of only $1 million against its $11 million budget. The Steven Soderbergh film, Kafka. 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 Is that your real name? Well, why shouldn't it be? There are people watching. This has been open. Oh. Shall I reseal it? I understand you fancy yourself as a writer. You should find a more athletic hobby. Ah! 
Jeremy Irons is Kafka. To solve a mystery, he will enter a nightmare. Kafka, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Despite its pathetic run at the box office, this movie has become a bit of a cult classic for a very particular audience. And, in fact, has now been remade by Soderbergh under a new title and is, as of this recording, making the film festival rounds. Regardless how well it was received 30 years ago, this trailer sells it for me. I definitely want to check it out. That just about does it for this week, friends. But before I wrap up, I do want to say happy 30th to my birthday twin, 12 years apart, actress Shailene Woodley most famous for her role as Beatrice Pryor from the Divergent film series, none of which I've seen. I only know her from her role as Jane Chapman in the phenomenal HBO series Big Little Lies. Happy birthday, Shailene, and, well, happy birthday, me. Friends, as always, I'll be back next week with more, and you're invited to join me. Spoiler alert, if you're a Disney fan, you definitely don't want to miss it. Until then, in the words of Joe Don Baker and Cape Fear... Anytime you feel squirrely, you just jump. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 